Welcome back to Touching Base, the new weekly podcast series from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, or GEN. I'm Faye Lin, Senior Editor of GEN Biotechnology, GEN's sister peer review journal publishing original research and perspectives across the biotech field. This week, I'm here with the GEN editorial team, Uduak Thomas, Jonathan Grinstein, and Alex Filipidis to discuss this week's latest stories in biotech. Make sure to stay tuned for part two of this episode, where we feature Jonathan's exclusive interview with Jen Nwankwo, CEO and founder of 1910 Genetics. Jonathan and Jen discuss the company's machine learning-based multi-module drug discovery platforms for generating novel drug candidates and the state of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the industry. But first, we're going to chat with the Gen editors on news that caught their eye this week, starting with some science and the brain. Uduak, you covered news focusing on Alzheimer's disease. What were some of the key takeaways? Absolutely. So as you said, Faye, today I'm going to be talking about a study that looks at diseases and disorders of the brain, specifically Alzheimer's, but there are potentially other applications. So this is a study that was led by scientists at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. And what they did was they linked these short strands of toxic RNA to neuron death in Alzheimer's disease and just aging brains in general. Uh, the paper is coming out this week. It's in Nature Communication, so folks can keep their eyes out for that. So just a little bit of background on the, the short RNAs that are discussed in the study. These are non-coding, um, but they do have their, their place in the cell. So one class of these short RNAs basically suppress the production of proteins made by longer coding RNAs. So the researchers in this study identified some sequences that are present in some of these short RNAs that when they are there, they can actually kill cells by blocking the production of proteins that the cells need to survive. So these are the so-called toxic uh, short RNAs. And these are what the scientists say are involved in the death of neurons in the brain, um, which of course we know contributes to the development of Alzheimer's um, disease. Now, normally these short toxic RNAs are inhibited by protective short RNAs. And these are things like microRNAs. And microRNAs actually are one of the main species of the protective short RNAs. And so as people get older, these protective short RNAs actually decrease. And that's what leaves room for the toxic RNAs to build up and ultimately go on to damage um, the cells. So that's what the study looked at. And what the scientists did, and they do say that this is the first time this has been done, they linked the reduction in protective RNAs and increase in the toxic RNAs to the neuron death that we would see in Alzheimer's disease cases. And there is some support uh, for the findings described in the paper from studies on superagers. And so these are people, individuals aged 80 and older, but they have superior memory capacity for their age. I believe it's they have the uh, memory capacity of people who are 20 to 30 years younger than they are. And the analysis of data from these brains showed that these superagers actually have higher amounts of the protective short RNA in their brain cells. So there is definitely there does seem to be a, a good link here that deserves further exploration. Could the findings of the study be applied beyond Alzheimer's? And what are the next steps for the team in terms of the study? Yeah, absolutely. So the researchers certainly seem to think that there, there are applications beyond Alzheimer's. Um, in fact, they believe that their data could be applied to almost all neurodegenerative diseases. And actually, one of the things that one of the researchers notes is that 
this finding might actually explain why some patients have a symptom-free period when they are diagnosed with some sort of neuro neurodegenerative disease. And then as their cells get older and the protection drops, then all of a sudden the toxic RNAs are able to build up and you start to see more symptoms of the disease. So there's potential that this could explain some of the things that we see in patients with these conditions. One of the things the researchers do believe is that the findings could point to a new direction for drug development in the context of Alzheimer's specifically. Obviously, we know that a lot of development efforts focus mostly on amyloid plaques in the brain, um, which is the, I think, most well-known hallmark of AD, or they focus on preventing uh, phosphorylation of tau, which is also what leads to the tangles that we see in uh, various tauopathies like Alzheimer's. So one possible treatment for AD could be some sort of therapy that maybe increases or enhances uh, the protective short RNAs in the brain. So that could be a potential uh, area of exploration. There are some drugs out there that do this, but these would need to go through additional testing before we could uh, say that they would be a, a treatment. So looking, they could look at this in AD. They could also look at this in aging more generally and other diseases. For their specific next steps, the researchers are actually looking to assess exactly how much the toxic short RNAs contribute to neuron death. They want to quantify that a little bit more. And then they would also plan to screen for compounds that would either increase the protective RNAs or block the activities of the toxic ones. So be interesting to see where the research goes, be interesting to see what they're able to discover and if this will have an impact on Alzheimer's disease, which is obviously a very, very terrible and very frustrating disease. So I'll hopefully be keeping an eye on that. But in the meantime, people should check out the study. It's coming out this week in Nature Communications. Jonathan, I'm going to pivot to you. You covered a fun topic this week, monkey cloning. What's the news there? Yeah, so growing up a child of the 90s, I couldn't resist, but uh, looking at a cloning story, I grew up with Dolly the sheep, and um, you know, somatic cell nuclear transfer technology has been widely used over the past 10, 20 years for the cloning of various mammalian species, and uh, this has important implications for research purposes, um, but one area where somatic cell nuclear transfer has yet to be successful is with rhesus macaques or rhesus monkeys, um, which are still highly used in research to this day. Uh, they're very important for preclinical work. And so far to date, there has been very little success using somatic cell nuclear transfer technology to clone monkeys. Researchers have been able to achieve a live birth, but the animal did not live for more than 12 hours after birth. So that's kind of the bar that, that that these researchers from this paper, which was published in Nature Communications, were kind of working with. And, and they now report a monkey that, as of the publishing of the paper, has lived for two years. Um, this monkey was cloned, as I said, with somatic cell nuclear transfer. And to get it to work, they didn't just do what everyone else has been doing. So based off their comparative multiomics data sets analysis, they devised a new strategy called trophoblast replacement. And it uses histone demethylases and a histone deacetylation inhibitor, along with treating the embryos with trophoblast lineages or, or growing them with extra embryonic tissue. And they were able to develop a monkey post-birth. And the monkey lives today. It is at least two years old as of now. And so these findings offer valuable understanding of the reprogramming process for monkeys using somatic cell nuclear transfer, and they present a promising new approach for primate cloning. 
We're going to wish that monkey a long and fruitful life. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, no problem. I I started a Twitter uh, trying to see what you know, nominate a name for it, and I came up with came up with Gurdon after the uh, you know the originator of somatic cell nuclear transfer. I also wanted to just quickly comment on a story about a new institution called Arena Bioworks. So Arena Bioworks is a new state-of-the-art facility in Kendall Square Biotech Hub in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And their goal is to focus on determining the mechanisms of human disease and advancing new tech to translate the insights into therapeutics. And they'll create in-house biotech companies. They'll kind of be working to support developments, efforts of drugs and platforms through preclinical studies. And like I said, there will be spin-out companies uh, when appropriate. Co-founders include Stuart Schreiber. He's a world-renowned Harvard University scientist and a co-founder of the Broad Institute. Steve Pagliuca former Bain Capital co-chair and co-owner of the Boston Celtics, and Tom Cahill of life science venture capital firm New Path Partners. Stuart Schreiber will be part of their core scientific team, but that also includes Keith Jung, and other leading scientists will be announced at a later date. Oh, nice. We're going to move to Alex as we ship from science to business. Alex, what's the latest business news this week? Well, um, I had uh, focused in our Stockwatch feature on uh, Cytokinetics. Uh, that's a company that got a lot of headlines uh, last week through the J.P. Morgan uh, conference, in part because of news uh, reports that Novartis was going to acquire Cytokinetics. That actually further spiked the uh, stock of Cytokinetics, which had been climbing since October 31st, when it was identified as a possible takeover target. Then in uh, late December, it came out with positive uh, data for its uh, from its phase three trial of its lead candidate, Afikampton. It's a drug for symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HCM. And between then and the uh, actually on the day of that data, the shares almost doubled uh, 83%. This is December 27th. And then it spiked up another 30% heading to the second day of JP Morgan when the Novartis uh, emerged as a uh, potential buyer. Thing is, uh, a couple of days later, Novartis appeared to have backed down from uh, buying Cytokinetics. Uh, this, according to the same unnamed sources that fueled the Novartis uh, report and the stock uh, after then uh, started to drop by double uh, the digits, about 15% uh, on that news. And why? Well, in part because other, uh, well, Cytokinetics is uh, shopping around for a, a buyer and they have been since the fall. Some other big pharma names surfaced as potential buyers. Uh, and it appeared from those who follow these developments that uh, Cytokinetics wanted to see what uh, several buyers would offer for the company. And these other buyers include AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and included Amgen. So still uh, in play uh, very much and uh, wait to see what happens with that. But no, none of the reports had uncovered how much buyers have 
competitive bid for cytokinetics, although the Betavel M&A deals website had reported that cytokinetics has been holding out for a price of between $130 and $145 a share. That would be uh, more than 50 to almost 70% above its closing price Friday of uh, $85.60 a share, and that would value the company between $12.5 and $14 billion compared with its market value of $8 billion in change. So if that range is accurate, it might explain why Novartis walked away from a deal. Why? Because at JP Morgan, Vas Narasimhan, the uh, CEO of Novartis, said that the company is committed to buying up companies in the uh, up to $2 billion or $1 billion range. That's actually a narrower focus than what as Nara Simhan told CNBC, which was he was looking at, quote, sub $5 billion uh, companies to uh, acquire. So it appears uh, just based on that, that Cytokinetics uh, may have priced itself uh, a little high, although with other buyers looking in, it's in Cytokinetics' interest to uh, check out those offers and maybe it can fetch uh, that type of a higher price. And that was probably one of the most discussed deals that did not happen uh, at J.P. Morgan. That conference saw a, a trio of announced deals uh, during it, biggest of which was uh, Novartis. Uh, actually, no, biggest of which was Johnson & Johnson uh, taking out uh, Ambrex uh, for $2 billion uh, cash. The smallest one had Novartis buying Calypso uh, for up to $425 million. The third one is GlaxoSmithKline acquiring Aeolos Bio for $1.1 billion. That's a respiratory uh, drug developer. Now, it's interesting in all these three that did take place is that these are fairly small deals at a time when we heard a lot of talk in the late December and in the days leading up to JP Morgan that uh, M&A was poised for some sort of uh, big bounce back and uh, we'll be seeing uh, a lot of bigger deals. Well, we did see a, a few in late December, but we didn't see those kind of big deals that J.P. Morgan is known for from recent years. I mean, by just by comparison, in 2019, Bristol Myers Squibb shelled out $74 billion to buy Celgene the weekend before J.P. Morgan. And on the first day of that 2019 conference, uh, Lilly uh, spent $8 billion with a B to take out Loxo Oncology. So the area M&A is poised for some kind of comeback, and I learned that through some full-year statistics that EY, the former Ernst & Young, had uh, furnished to me as a follow-up to an article I had written on their firepower uh, report, which tries to predict M&A activity uh, each year. For the full year of 2023, 129 deals uh, got done compared to 126 uh, in all of uh, 2022. Uh, the value of the deals, though, uh, jumped quite a bit, $215 billion, uh, total, according to EY, and that's up 51% from $142 billion in 2022. So, uh, also, the average value uh, of deals uh, doubled to two uh, to two billion. So, um, yeah, there's something of a comeback, though. I think it remains to be seen uh, how robust the uh, M&A market will be uh, as the year goes on. Thanks, Udoak, Jonathan, and Alex for the news coverage of the week.
Jonathan, we're very excited to hear your exclusive interview with Jen Nwankwo from 1910 Genetics after this quick break. This episode of Touching Base is brought to you by the State of Cell and Gene Therapy. On January 24th, Jen proudly hosts this latest virtual event, the State of Cell and Gene Therapy. Over four and a half hours, you'll hear from a superb lineup of experts and thought leaders discussing the latest trends, breakthroughs, and challenges in the world of cell and gene therapy. Our speakers include Karen Musanuru, University of Pennsylvania and co-founder of Verb Therapeutics, Peter Marks, Director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research at the FDA, Jim Wilson, Gene Therapy Pioneer at Penn, Adrian Wolfson, co-founder and executive chairman of Replay, and a very special guest, Victoria Gray, the first patient treated in a landmark XSL clinical trial for sickle cell disease, approved by the FDA in December 2023. The state of cell and gene therapy is free to register, thanks to generous sponsorship from Aldebaran, Charles River, and Roslyn CT. For more information and to register, check us out at www.gnenge.com news.com forward slash summits. Welcome back to Touching Base, the new podcast series from Jen. In this segment, Jonathan Grinstein chatted with Jen Nwankwo, founder and CEO of 1910 Genetics, on the company's drug discovery platforms and the state of diversity, equity, inclusion in the industry. Let's tune in. Thanks for taking the time to meet with me, Jen. Tell me about 1910 Genetics. Sure, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity. So 1910 Genetics is a biotechnology company that is advanced in small and large molecule drug discovery using a multimodal AI platform that's powered by laboratory automation. We were founded five years ago um, in Boston. We have spent quite a bit of time in the California area, uh, starting with Y Combinator and the Winter 19 bath. So we went through that, uh, did a seed round following YC. I was led by Sam Altman of OpenAI and then went back to Boston after YC and uh, joined Lab Central, which is a premier uh, incubator for biotech companies in Boston and started hiring the first team. Combination of computational chemists and machine learning scientists and biologists and built the first prototype of what is now just a much, much more advanced platform. I look back at the first iterations and it's almost comical, but that's what you expect uh, in a startup's evolution. And I think I can definitely get into more specifics as to how the platform works. So our single multimodal modality agnostic platform we call ITO, which stands for Input Transform Output. And what that means, that's pretty pretty high level, right? Mm -hmm. And what that means is that Regardless of the therapeutic modality that we wanted to design, be it a, a FAB or full-length monoclonal or a small molecule inhibitor or a small molecule agonist, we will go through the same input, transform, output, set, set of steps. And in the input stage, we're going to ask ourselves, well, input is all about the data. What data do we have or do we need to create across these three modes, computational synthetic data, 
uh, wet lab proxy biological data and wet lab ground truth data. So we sit down, every problem for 1910 genetics begins with what data does this problem need? And we systematically create the data, obviously also leveraging in-house data, and in some cases, some public data, if it is high quality enough, which most times isn't the case. Uh, but we go through that whole step and we lay out like, okay, we're gonna need X million data points of this type of computational simulations, and we're gonna need Y thousands of data points of this type of proxy and so on. Once we lay out the data strategy to tackle that specific antibody design or protein degraded design problem, then we move to the, that's the I, the input. Then we move to the next stage, which is a transform. In transform, we also go through another selection process, this time around, not of data types, but of machine learning architectures, right? So we, we believe in selecting and using uh, bespoke machine learning architectures for the particular problem, right? It's not a everyday, it's a neural network problem. It's like, okay, what are we trying to do here? What does the data look like for this particular problem? And as a result, what kind of output are we going for? And as a result, what is the best machine learning model? So sometimes we'll decide, okay, we're going to do um, a graph neural network with attention or a graph neural network with attention and with reinforcement learning, or we're gonna do a diffusion model, we're gonna do different types of things like that. We make that decision in part based on what the target is, what the output is, and most importantly, what the data look like that we were able to accumulate for that problem. Once we make the model selection, then we go ahead and transform the data with the models, right? So the process of what people call training and inference in machine learning is just, we call it transform. You're transforming a set of data, right? And in our case, where our data is multimodal, you got some ground truth data in there, you got some proxy data in there, you got some simulations data in there, all different modes of data. The transformation strategy and the steps there is pretty intricate, right? So we go ahead and we do that, and in the transformation process, the output of that is molecules that we design, right? Either de novo designs or optimizing existing series. Because sometimes, you know, we've had partners come to us and say, oh, I have this hit molecule, this lead series, but it's got like this metabolic challenge or this stability, you know, sort of liability or any number of absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion, toxicity challenges. So in that scenario, the transformation we need to do in machine learning is not to use generative AI to create a new molecule, but as it is to say, here is, and you could use generative AI, this is to say, okay, we, could, we, we need to take this biotech partner or this pharma partner's existing lead, and we need to solve this um, liability in this molecule and so on. And, and we do that, and then um, we, we manufacture whatever is the next series of molecules, and then that concludes the transform step. One final sub-step in transform is where following synthesis, whether it be of protein sequences, if it's for a peptide or antibody or, you know, small molecules, following synthesis, we feed back the synthesis data to the machine learning. Because one of the biggest criticisms of AI, specifically generative AI, is generating things that cannot be made, right? Like we've seen models that, not in our own work, but models that just create like this crazy looking chemical mm -hmm. molecules that's got like carbon connected to like five bonds. It's like just organic chemistry 101. You cannot connect carbon to five bonds, right? But sometimes you have AI models just make mistakes like that or even create molecules that 
look, you know, at face value, like they could exist in nature, but you go trying to make them and you have like a 25% yield or you couldn't even make it at all. So whatever the synthesis yield is, or the synthesis success rate is, we feed that information back to the machine learning to be like, hey, here's actually what percentage of these molecules we're able to make. And then that synthesis feedback concludes a transform step. And then we go to the output step. And the output, the output is all about ground truth biological assays. In the output, you are generating, you are, you are designing, we are designing ground truth assays, not for the purpose of generating data to train AI, because we've done that. This time around, it's about validation. We're using the assays just purely as a readout to say whether it be uh, primary assays, you know, biochemical or cellular assays to, to assess things like potency and selectivity and a variety of admit criteria. Uh, we're using these assays for that purpose. And then uh, we obviously get the data back as to how did the molecule look and we just go through that loop. So the platform is called Input Transform Output because when I talked about abstracting away, I really meant abstracting. Now, when we want to design a small molecule versus a large molecule, an antibody or whatever, the input is very different. It's not the same model. So when I say it's the same platform, the platform, think of it as like a suite, different models, different data types. And when we come to design a small molecule, we will use a small molecule data set and we will use a small molecule model and we'll use it to transform that for a small molecule output. When we want to do something with peptides that, that deal with amino acid sequences, whether it be design of a linear peptide, a cyclic peptide or whatever, the input is different. The input is not small molecule input. So when I sometimes I think a lot of people have given pushback and say, well, how can you use the same platform to design small molecules versus large molecules? And I'm like, it's a level of abstraction that, that talks through the three steps that we go through, but then we pick the specific suite, the specific tools from the suite. Kind of like, I hate to use this analogy, but it's almost like AWS, right? You go on AWS, you got different kinds of tools. Uh, you got different kinds of containers, you got SageMaker for this, and you got all these different tools, and you assemble them to do specific developer tasks. That's how we think about the input transform output platform. You come onto it not because every model is an antibody model, or every data set is a sequence data set. You come onto it because you fundamentally understand that the whole entire process of AI-driven drug discovery is input, transform, output, and do that whole thing however many times, however many iterations you need in order to get the final development candidate, clinical candidate you want to do. So we keep doing that, and that's why I mean when I say we recognize that we had to do that process regardless of what the modality was, and we just said to ourselves, what typically is common? We, it's common that we need computational data. It's common that we need wet lab proxy data. It's common that we need ground truth data. It's common that we have a variety of classical machine learning, uh, you know, versus like AI, you know, model architectures. It's common that no matter how we transform the data, the output is to synthesize something, right? And whether that be having, you know, a partner make protein se uh, to synthesize protein uh, sequences or, uh, you know, you're working with, uh, you know, a CRO to uh, manufacture uh, small molecules. Regardless, you need to feed back the output of that into the machine learning. You got to make assays. Now, the assay part is actually where we actually see the most synergy because, Fundamentally, if you're trying to drug a particular target, let's say you're trying to reach a receptor, uh, maybe it's one that has an extracellular component, and you decide that you want to reach that receptor with either a small molecule or you know, an antibody, the assay is the same, 
right? Fundamentally, biochemical assay that expresses you got like pure protein, either intracellular, extracellular. The cellular assay is the same. The biochemical assay is the same. Uh, now, you might have to optimize, you know, maybe buffer conditions so that, you know, the antibodies don't aggregate or whatever, but that assay is the same. And I think that's actually where we see the most synergy. So I think for us, we've identified, recognized, and now like more intentionally harnessing the synergies that we see across these. And I think that's something that is completely unintuitive to pharma and frankly sounds like blasphemy to a lot of people. The first time they hear it, on because people just assume like, oh, are you saying you're going to, and it's like, no, I'm not saying you're going to use my molecular data design and antibody. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this works as like a suite, as like a, a true platform. A true platform is one that's got many different tools which you can assemble as needed for a specific task. And that's what's different about us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people will use and say they use AI mm -hmm. and, and it kind of will address one kind of small thing, whether it's just like, oh, let's create a synthetic library and it right. just kind of ends there. And right. you even said something which was very interesting to me, which was about like the noise problem there, which yeah. I'm guessing is just creating molecules that have well, the noise is a fact that fundamentally is synthetic data. Uh -huh. So a lot of people don't think of it as like real data, mm -hmm. right? Um, but what we are saying is that synthetic data is actually being neglected and underestimated in terms of the impact it can have. Mm -hmm. And the noise comes from the fact that there tends to be a lot of false positive, mm -hmm. right? How many times have you tried to use molecular docking to predict whether a, small, a ligand would bind to a protein? Almost always the docking software will find a pocket for it to bind to. <laughs> it will fit somewhere, yeah, right? Yeah. That ligand is going to fit somewhere. But then, obviously, we know that the, the false positive rate is pretty high. It's greater than 90% for most of this docking software. Greater than 95%, as a matter of fact. They will dock the molecule somewhere, but, but in, in the actual biological system, that molecule will not bind mm -hmm. to that target. Or it might bind and not have a functional, not, not have a consequence, not have a function. Or it might bind and actually have the opposite function to what you want it to have. You might want it to inhibit and it might agonize, mm -hmm. or you might want it to antagonize, or you might, you know what I mean? And so yeah. all of that is what I call noise because it's not the real thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then so people don't think of it as good training set. And what we're saying is part of our differentiation is we've actually figured out how to harness that. And it was interesting in December to hear that OpenAI was going to be releasing a new model called Q, which is training synthetic data. And we think when we say synthetic data, we, we're talking about like our simulations and all that in the biological context. When tech people talk about synthetic data, they're talking about data that AI can create. You know what I mean? But the idea is the same, right? That you can find new ways to increase your corpus of data mm -hmm. so that your machine learning models can have, you know, a greater depth and breadth on which to perform. So I think we're going to see the industry hopefully move more towards a recognition of the potential of, of synthetic data. And the partnership we're going to be announcing next week is almost just laser pointed at helping us to create these types of data sets at scale. What I'm really curious about then is, you know, where all this, where the stack ends, yeah. what, what happens from there? Um, I mean, you did mention certain partnerships yeah. and, and solving their targets. And I mm -hmm. assume that they have the biological know-how to yeah. read out these, you know, K 
candidates that you're giving them. I mean, we your... have the biological know-how to read them out. That's one of our differentiators. We've got the wet lab. We've got the ability to. I mean, I'm a I'm a PhD in pharmacology by training. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't write any code, mm-hmm. right? So like I I'm an in vivo pharmacologist, and we've got a, a team of you know uh, in vitro biologists and in vivo pharmacologists like myself. So we unlike many AI companies that are just pure in silico shops. Mm-hmm. We are not an in silico shop. Right, like we spend two years building our own facility, and we are creating every day different types of biochemical and cellular and increasingly in vivo model uh, assays in our own shops. So we are not relying on pharma partners to do biological readouts. We do that. What we're relying on them to do is to move it to the clinic and to actually make it a drug, because that's what pharma is great at. Right, pharma is great at converting molecules into therapeutics. Right. And so the ideal type of partnership on the pharma side is with someone who has got a track record of bringing therapies to market in the specific indication, uh, a therapeutic area for which you're partnering. But I think, as I mentioned, partnerships with pharma is one type of you know, strategically important partnership. But partnerships with big tech companies, I think increasingly we're starting to see more and more of those, right? Recently you saw NVIDIA and Genentech team up and within a week of that you saw Boringa Ingelheim and IBM. It's like IBM just resurrected from the dead, <laughs> right? And like you saw Boringa Ingelheim and IBM come together for a tie-up and now we haven't seen anything out of those tie-ups because they're very recent. But I think... What I'm particularly excited about is the value that a tech partner, especially a mature tech company, can bring to a company like 1910. Because when you're an AI drug discovery company and you partner with tech companies, tech companies, big tech in particular, like they're incentivized and they have the muscle to actually bring value to the tech platform itself which brings a different type of value when you partner with pharma companies. They're not bringing technology expertise to you. They're helping you harvest the fruit of your platform. Both types of partnerships are valuable, but I think for far too long, AI drug discovery companies have underestimated or frankly just not been aware of the types of value that um, they could sort of unlock by partnering with big tech to supercharge your platform and then even get it, you know, sort of perform it at a scale that would help them even now deliver even better for those pharma companies. So it's like go to the tech partners, supercharge your platform, and then go over deliver for the pharma companies. Yeah. So I want to shift gears all together here for the last moments that I have you, which is, this is your first JPM, is that right? No, I've, I've, this is not my first JPM. I've been a JPM, I mean, pretty much every year since um, I started the company. Yeah, so one thing I've noticed in a lot of the interviews I've had and just from like, you know, the people that I see is, yeah. you know, it's predominantly, as I call them, men in blue suits. <laughs> um, yes, And yes. I, I was talking to some women's C-suite members and they uh-huh. agreed with me that maybe there was an incremental, like, uh-huh. movement in the right direction. But I, I would love to hear from you, you know, as, as a woman and a person of color. Yeah. What has the experience been like? Has it changed at all for you over the years? Do, would you say that it's pretty... I think we're making progress. Yeah. You know, I think as a, as a black woman in pharma, in biotech, I think I can say we're making progress. Actually, it's funny because two nights ago, one of the receptions that I actually really was excited to attend was one organized by a fairly new group in the industry called Biopharma Leaders of Color. 
And it, it was uh, started by Rob Perez, the former CEO of Cubist, and I think one of the first ever black CEOs of a big biotech, medium-sized pharma. And we had in the fireside chat, Yvonne Greenstreet, who's the CEO of All Nylum, again, a black woman CEO. And, and in the audience, we had people like Tony Coles, CEO of Humanity, and, and I think Cerebral now, and had Ted Love, CEO of GBT, just sold to Pfizer. And I think there were like 400 people of color at that reception. And just walk into that reception, I remember looking around, I was like, I have never seen this number of black people in one street. And I guarantee all these black people are going to the same place. And we were all literally going to the same place. And I think just looking around, and I think Rob Perez put this, uh, he was like, I had, like, I just look around and I see all this color. And like, in my 30 years of being in the industry, this has never happened. This was his experience. And so for me, just honestly, all that color that I saw at, at the block, that's what it's called, Biopharma Leaders of Color block, block reception. And also like OGs like Ted and, and Yvonne and, uh, and Rob, I mean, Rob sold, you know, Cubist, Turmeric, Ted, GBT, the Pfizer, you know, all Nylum, obviously, a storied company, and Yvonne taking over from John Mar- Maragnor, and, you know, Tony Coles, and, you know, I just, just looking at all these guys, I'm like, oh my goodness, we literally got four black CEOs sitting in the front row, I'm like, that's, that, that was so inspiring, I remember leaving that reception that night, just thinking, just brick by brick, we're making a dent. Yeah. Right? So, obviously, I intersect on many dimensions of minorities. So, there's a how many women are there, right? and then there's a how many black people are there. But I'm just speaking purely from the, the African-American black perspective where looking around in that room, I was just beaming with pride and seeing how far we've come. Yeah. I think, obviously, more work to be done, for sure. But it was it was hard to be in that room and see 300, 400 people of color and not just feel a sense of pride. Yeah. Well, definitely movement in the right direction. Hopefully you'll need right. a space twice as large next yes, year. Absolutely. You know. And then and then hopefully it's not so predictable that all black people are going to the same one reception because there's only one. You know what I mean? Yeah, hopefully it's yeah. not so predictable in coming years. But the fact that we had this this reception this year and this massive turnout, shout out to Rob, Perez and obviously all the organizers and it, like I said, it was it was so hard to not be moved to tears, to see how far we've come as a race. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Jen, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, and absolutely. And for talking thank about 1910. Thank you for having about me. about Block as well. Yeah. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Touching Base. We'll be back next week with more news coverage of the biotech field. Until then, I'm Faye Lin. We'll see you next time.